This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. This idea obviously has deep roots in, in Western society, right? It goes back to, you know, you can look at the the Genesis story from the Bible, where the Bible says that God made humans in his image and granted us, quote, dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And then we were supposed to be fruitful and go forth and multiply and replenish and subdue the earth. And if you look at the global environmental crisis in which we find ourselves, that's really rooted in this idea that everything is just there for our exploitation, for our satisfaction, that rather than viewing nature the way that ecologists recognize nature is, which is a series of incredibly complex interconnected systems, or rather than seeing nature the way that indigenous people see it as a group of relationships that humans share with all our other members of the living and non- non-living communities, there has been this conceptualization of everything non-human as inferior and also simply there for humans to exploit. Welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies channel will be animal rights. I'm talking today with David R. Boyd. David is one of Canada's leading experts in environmental law and policy. He is an associate professor of law, policy, and sustainability at the Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Boyd has advised many governments from Canada to Sweden on environmental and constitutional issues. He was the co-chair of Vancouver's Greenest City Initiative, along with Mayor Gregor Robertson. Boyd's current research focuses on the right to live in a healthy environment, the rights of nature, environmental justice, and the need for a new generation of environmental laws. In addition to his nine books, Boyd also wrote Sustainability Within a Generation, a new vision for Canada, and more than 100 articles on environmental issues in publications ranging from the Globe and Mail to the Canadian Medical Association Journal. David is the former executive director of the Sierra Legal Defense Fund, now EcoJustice, Canada's leading public interest environmental law organization. He lives on Pender Island in British Columbia with his wife, Margaret Venton, and their daughter, Meredith. He enjoys kayaking, running, cycling, and is the reigning Barnacle Man champion. 
David R. Boyd's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2017's The Rights of Nature, A Legal Revolution That Could Save the World, published by ECW Press. Palila v. Hawaii, New Zealand's Te Uriwera Act, Sierra Club v. Disney. These legal phrases hardly sound like the makings of a revolution, but beyond the headlines pretending environmental catastrophes, a movement of immense import has been building in courtrooms, legislatures, and communities across the globe. Cultures and laws are transforming to provide a powerful new approach to protecting the planet and the species with whom we share it. Lawyers from California to New York are fighting to gain legal rights for chimpanzees and killer whales, and lawmakers are ending the era of keeping these intelligent animals in captivity. In Hawaii and India, judges have recognized that endangered species, from birds to lions, have the legal right to exist. Around the world, more and more laws are being passed, recognizing that ecosystems, rivers, forests, mountains, and more, have legally enforceable rights. And if nature has rights, then humans have responsibilities. In the rights of nature, environmental lawyer David Boyd tells this remarkable story, which is, at its heart, one of humans as a species finally growing up. Read this book and your worldview will be altered forever. Uh, welcome, David, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be with you, Mark. I really appreciate it. So before we begin, I just wanted to quickly tell you that I think your book is really wonderful. Um, I'm personally involved in the animal rights space, and I had heard of some, though definitely not most, of the cases and developments you cover in your book. But regardless, I definitely did not have a high level understanding of what was going on. And that's exactly what your book gives. It's very informative, but it's also very interesting. And I came away from it informed and even to a degree, somewhat optimistic. So uh, thank you for writing such a great, uh, informative book. Yeah, well, I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, of course, it's been a couple of years since the book came out. And, the you know, the this idea that nature should have rights just continues to gain traction in in various and sometimes surprising corners of the world. So looking forward to our conversation. I mean, we see that across the board, how it, on the one hand, it seems like there's just unimaginable amounts of progress being made. But on the other hand, we're starting from, from so little progress that exponential growth starting from a tiny, a tiny amount is not necessarily adequate to what we need. No, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, you're right. Uh, any any scientific evidence that you look at indicates that we are, you know, we're in we're in we're in the beginning stages of what scientists refer to as the sixth mass extinction, and, and that's directly a cause of human mistreatment of the natural world. Again, I mean, the 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 trajectory is in heading in the right direction, but we need to sharpen that curve up even a little bit more to get there as quickly as possible, but. As a way to begin, I was wondering, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, your your background, your training, and the focus of your work? Uh, sure. Well, I'm a Canadian. I'm, I've been an environmental lawyer for 30 years. I've been in love with the natural world since I was a little boy growing up in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. And so I've worked as an environmental lawyer. I've worked for governments. I've worked for nonprofit organizations. I've Currently, I'm serving as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment. And I guess if there's one common thread through everything that I've ever done, it's that it's this passion for 
for the outdoors, passion for wild spaces and wild things. So your book is about legal efforts to grant rights and protections to, to animals and to nature. And I thought we could begin with the foundational concept of the the old order, or really, I mean, in many ways, the order in which we still live, which is that of property. You write that, quote, the idea that nature is merely a collection of things intended for human use is one of the most universal and unquestioned concepts in contemporary society. It is remarkable to reflect on the fact that although there are millions of species on Earth, a single species of hyper-intelligent primates, homo sapiens, has laid claim through the assertion of legal ownership to almost every square meter of the 148 million square kilometers of land on the planet, end quote. Could you talk to us quickly about this? What is property legally? And what does it mean that almost every living thing on earth, at least on land, is legally considered the property of, of individuals or of government? Property from a legal perspective is just, that's what people... That's what people own, you know, in the eyes of the law, animals are property, whether they're cats or dogs or grizzly bears or wild salmon. And so that that is something that is just subject to human ownership. And it's to me, at least and to, to many people, it's disconcerting to think that a, a dog or a cat, you know, these pets that people have these tremendous relationships with have, have are 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 considered in the eyes of the law to be no different than a, a table, a chair, or a teaspoon. And that's even more disconcerting, at least from my vantage point, when you think of these magnificent wild animals that under Canadian law or American law are the government's property until uh, at least until they're killed, and at which point they become a hunter's or a fisher's property. So let's quickly step back and take a, a big picture view of the situation. So you quote conservationist and writer Aldo Leopold as writing, quote, conservation is getting nowhere because it is incompatible with our Abrahamic concept of land. We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us, end quote. And of course, this worldview that views land as our property is the, the philosophy or worldview in which the Western world developed that created the world in which we live. So could you talk to us briefly about this, about how this Abrahamic worldview was implemented via law and, and how that heritage informs the way that we, that we perceive things and perceive our relationship to the, to the physical and, and biological world around us? Yeah, this idea obviously has deep roots in, in Western society, right? It goes back to, you know, you can look at the the Genesis story from the Bible, where we, the the Bible says that God made humans in His image and granted us quote dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And then we were supposed to be fruitful and go forth and multiply and replenish and subdue the earth. And that's really that's if you look at the global environmental crisis in which we find ourselves, that's really rooted in this idea that everything. Everything is just there for our exploitation, for our satisfaction, that nature is not, rather than viewing nature the way that ecologists recognize nature is, which is a, a series of incredibly complex interconnected systems, or rather than seeing nature the way that 
indigenous people see it as a group of a group of relationships that humans share with all our other members of the living and non non living communities. There has been this conceptualization of everything non human as inferior and also simply there for humans to exploit. And that is what we have done with from from one perspective, tremendous success in, you know, converting vast swaths of the earth into farmland and pastures for raising livestock in terms of massive depletion of the of the once thought to be inexhaustible fisheries of the oceans. It's it's all rooted in in these basic concepts which are so integral to our societal understanding that we don't even they're not even questioned or or discussed really you know the concepts of of property that you mentioned the the fact of anthrop anthropocentrism which is human superiority from and separate superiority to and separation from the rest of the natural world and you know these ideas just they can't withstand scrutiny in a in a from a 21st century scientific perspective you know we know that humans share dna the basic building block of life with every other form of life on the planet the the elements which our bodies are comprised of are the same elements that make up everything else on this living planet you know it's poetically speaking we can talk about stardust but really that's physically accurate as well any anytime you want to talk about Carl Sagan, I'm I'm here for you to talk about Carl and Stardust. Um so you you actually just transition immediately perfectly into my next question, which is that throughout your book, you you kind of hammer away on a, a few occasions as to the discrepancy between the scientific view of humans and the legal view of humans. And you were just touching upon this. So according to the modern synthesis of Darwinian evolution and Mendelian genetics, humans are descended from the same ancestors as our fellow species. We're closely related to them and share many things in common. In fact, at least with the mammals and other and many of the animals, we share far more in common than we have different. You write, quote, the notion that humans are distinct from and superior to other animals permeates Western legal systems producing outcomes that are at odds with reality, end quote. And of course, this is what you were just getting at. So could you talk to us a little bit about this, about how the the legal conception of what humans are is at odds with the contemporary knowledge of our biology and history, about how even though we know that we're intensely related, the legal system treats us as fundamentally distinct. Right. Yeah. And it's almost comical, right? I mean, if you look up uh, Black's Law Dictionary, which is kind of a textbook that everyone uses when they're in law school and that lawyers turn to all the time in the United States and Canada, uh, it, it defines animal as all living creatures that are not human. And it always has made me laugh when I enter a, a shopping center or a, a store and they have a sign on the door that says, no animals allowed. I mean, right. if that was actually true, they would be out of business uh, because nobody would be allowed in the store, right? And so it's, it's, it's in a sense, it's funny. But on the other hand, it's, it's really gravely serious because it's created this illusion of superiority, this illusion of separation. And these illusions are at the heart of why we have created 
a global climate emergency, why we are provoking the sixth mass extinction of species, why we are in such a dysfunctional relationship than with the natural world that we are we are, through our own actions we're causing this surge in emerging infectious diseases and it's not just the covid-19 pandemic ebola hiv aids nipah virus avian influenza all of these emerging infectious diseases are caused by human activities that are rooted in these ideas that you and I are discussing these ideas of superiority separation that that nature is just a a basket of commodities and that and that somehow humans are separate from nature when the the biological reality is that we breathe the same air we drink the same water we are dependent absolutely dependent for all of the all of the hype and speculation about lab grown meats and other kind of space uh you know, futuristic foods. The reality is that we are utterly dependent on healthy ecosystems and healthy biodiversity, not just for our survival, but for our well-being. Right. It it goes to bring it back to Carl Sagan and Cosmos. Um, I remember a, a, a part of that show that really kind of changed my life, where he's talking about an oak tree, and he says that the the device or the the um, the uh, molecule that the cells use in an oak tree to read their DNA is the same dictionary as humans have. The DNA is quite different, and that's what makes humans different than oak trees. But if you go down into the cellular level, even that is, it's really the same. And the reason it's the same is because we share a common ancestor. We really are related. We're cousins, even if somewhat distantly related. And to go back to our last question about Genesis, I think there are really two assumptions inherent in Genesis that you touched on. One of them is that the world is ours for the taking, but the other is that the world is flawed and, and needs to be improved. Humans need to remake it in our image to, to improve it and to redeem it. And I think those two, the first one is more obvious, but the second one is, is there. And I think that it's still there in the world today, this, this desire on society's part to sort of just transform the entire world into our image and 200,000 or two, 2000 years ago, when there was hundreds of millions of humans on earth, it was probably already a problem. But today when there's almost 9 billion humans um, or 8 billion humans, it's, we're on a dangerous course right now. Oh yeah. And it's really madness when you think about how much, how many trillions of dollars have been invested in the space program and and after all of that, after decades of the, the best and brightest scientists, we still have not found any other planet that can support life. I mean, this planet we live on, this beautiful blue-green Earth, is a it's a miracle of the highest order. The fact that life emerged and evolved to the complexity, the diversity, the staggering beauty of this planet, uh, that even in its diminished state today, it just it really boggles my mind. And then you have these these people like Elon Musk who think we should try and you know create colonies on Mars. I mean, Mars is a lifeless planet. Life there would be an absolute horror. It would be so desperately unfulfilling that I'm sure if humans had to live there, it would be it would be a recipe for insanity because you know this planet Earth, it, the giver of life, it has evolved over the course of close to four billion years to have these systems that support us. I mean, 
you know, where does the oxygen in the air we breathe come from? It comes from plants on land and um, it comes from the oceans. It's you know, like there's no replacing that. They, they yeah. did this crazy experiment uh, a while back in Arizona where they tried to create a, a miniature biosphere. And, you know, the people who were part of that experiment were kicking on the doors to get out of there in a matter of months. You just all of our in all of our supposed human ingenuity is no match for the for the genius and the wisdom of of nature as it has evolved in this laboratory of life over the past 3.8 billion years it's it's a bit funny and a bit depressing that we feel that it's it may be a, a more plausible scenario to terraform an entire foreign planet than to try to get our act together on this planet and salvage what we have yeah, it's one of the craziest ideas I've ever come across. I mean, and consider the, you know, the energy involved with with getting any substantial number of humans from Earth to Mars. I mean, it's it's just bonkers. I mean, please, Mr. Musk, stick with building electric cars. Yeah. So you touch on in your book the difference between animal welfare and animal rights and I'm not sure if everyone is familiar with that. I, I myself was not that familiar with the distinction until not too long ago. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? What is animal welfare and what is animal rights and how are they different? Sure. Yeah. So animal welfare is basically about recognizing that humans are going to use other types of other species, whether they're dogs or cats or cattle or horses. And Animal welfare means we should, in our treatment of those other animals, at least treat them with some modicum of respect. So um, to avoid animal cruelty. So basically, you know, um, avoiding animal cruelty is the cornerstone of animal welfare. And so, you know, things like uh, initiatives to try and give give chickens a bit more space in their cages or to let cattle out of the barn once in a while to to see the see the blue sky that's animal welfare so it's really modest kind of incremental improvements in the in the quality of life of these animals that the humans are are using and animal rights is really quite a different beast because animal rights starts from the position that animals have their own you know and it's it's really important to say at the outset here animal rights does not mean human rights for non-human species it doesn't mean that dogs and turkeys should have the right to vote. It means that dogs should have rights that are appropriate and relevant for dogs and turkeys should have rights that are relevant and appropriate for turkeys. And that really means things in terms of, and, and then we have to kind of distinguish between, I guess, domestic species and, and wild species. And for wild species, the concept of, uh, of rights means they have right to the the habitat that they require to survive and to flourish um, in the context of domestic animals, then it's more like they have a right to the, to the elements that will provide them with not, not just life, but some degree of comfort as well. You got defensive a minute or, or I think not defensive, but you were covering your tracks because you know, the way that some people will protest that, or what are we going to, are, are, cows going to start to vote, these, these sorts of things. But 
even within there aren't there isn't human rights. Different humans have different rights depending on their age, depending on all sorts of different things. So it, it really isn't too subtle a, an idea to think that different groups would have different rights that are that are pertinent to them. But the idea of animal rights is just that animals as living and, and sentient beings are entitled to some rights. I spoke not too long ago with Peter Singer, who's a famous animal rights or animal advocate philosopher. And yes. he said, interestingly, that he he himself, he's not disparaging animal rights, but he himself said that he is not personally too interested in rights because rights are I don't think that meant, I want to be clear, I don't think that meant that he doesn't think that that's an important initiative for humans to be working on. But as a philosopher, rights are a legal concept, and he's independent of that. So he thinks that animals should be treated well, regardless you know, of whether or not there are legal legal structures in place. But right. And I, I hope that I did some justice to his, to his thought. But nevertheless, we live in a world that has has operators, people are doing things, and there is a law structure that attempts to bring order onto that society. So whether or not in an ideal world we would need laws and rights to have people treat animals with respect, we we do live in a world where that is the case. So in that context, could you talk to us what role do actual what what would be the difference if we were able to implement uh, a robust set of rights for animals versus a world, the world in which we live now, where many of them are treated as property and have effectively no rights. Yeah, well, let me give you one kind of classic example of the difference between these two paradigms that we're talking about, Mark, between an animal welfare model and an animal rights model. Uh, and the example I want to talk about is the use of these incredible animals uh, cetaceans such as killer whales, dolphins, uh, other uh, yeah, dolphins, uh, beluga whales that are that are captured and that are kept in basically large swimming pools so that they can entertain humans at places like SeaWorld. Now, an animal welfare perspective would say, okay, we'll make sure that the whale, make sure that these animals are well fed and that you know there are veterinarians on staff to take care of them if they become ill from an animal rights perspective that is just grossly inadequate i mean everything we know about the the extraordinary intelligence of these animals about the about the community and the and i think i'm i'm using this word because scientists are using this word the societies and the communities of these animals are just extraordinarily sophisticated and complex and and that's only we're only scratching the surface of what we know about for example killer whales and the and the societies in which they live and so from a rights perspective there is absolutely no justification for imprisoning these animals and using them simply to entertain and you know maybe in quotation marks educate human beings that just doesn't that's just not possible under an animal rights model and the same thing applies for all of the incredible great apes who are our closest uh, closest cousins in the animal kingdom you know the gorillas the chimpanzees uh, the bonobos and also you know more more distant cousins like elephants even i would say ranging out to the octopus which is another it's a species that i learned so much about in the course of doing research 
for this book about how intelligent the octopus can be. And so the the animal rights model recognizes that you know we should be treating these different species in a way that's much more respectful and would require us to really transform the way that we relate to them uh, in the world. Right. So simply put, animal welfareists are attempting to to make the best of what we have. And animal rights advocates are attempting to transform our understanding of of the way things should be and restructure some of our relations with our with our non-human uh, relatives on this planet. Right. But I think it's also it's, I just want to say before we before we move on that I think it's really important. You know, I'm, I definitely put myself in the camp of someone who thinks we should recognize the rights of animals. But I do want to acknowledge that the people who have worked tirelessly in the animal welfare field have achieved tremendous gains for that have enriched and, and brought greater comfort to the lives of, of literally billions of animals that were previously being even more egregiously exploited by human beings. Agreed. I think that it's it's there's no single front at which we should be working on this. We they're doing important work. Animal rights advocates are doing important work. And they're they're complementary, the the yes. two projects that both of those the, both of those teams are working on, trying to trying to further the cause of of animal welfare and just and good animal existence. So yes, absolutely. So let's talk about just a few examples of some of the legal innovations your book covers. Could you begin by telling us about the non-human rights projects work around legal personhood? What is legal personhood and why did Stephen Weiss, the founder of the non-human rights project, eventually come to the conclusion that legal personhood was the the best route? the best legal route for him to pursue? Yes, that's a really, that's, that's a really interesting question, Mark. And this idea of legal personhood is basically, uh, from, a, from a legal perspective, it means that we can, we can write laws which acknowledge that anything is a person for purposes of the law. And we have done that historically for corporations are considered legal persons, municipalities are considered legal persons. And so it's not a it's not a foreign concept to the common law system. Boats, right? Boats can be considered legal persons. Boats. I mean, there's cases from other countries where religious idols have been uh, given legal personhood in in an effort to protect them. And so, turning that legal personhood model around and saying, "Look, maybe there are certain species of animals that we should consider." recognizing their legal personhood. That's something that has really interesting roots in in human rights as well, because you know, we're talking right now we're we're talking about non-human animals, but for a long time, certain categories of humans were not considered to be persons under the common law. And you know, I'm talking about slaves in, in the 17th century were, were considered objects, were considered property. And it took a, a colossal legal, social, cultural, and uh, and physical battles to achieve personhood for slaves, and, and including some really fascinating court cases, which inspired Stephen Wise in the work that he's doing to try and achieve 
legal recognition of the personhood of great apes and elephants in, in cases that he's been bringing in in the state of New York. And so his basic argument is, look at the science that has emerged over the past 50 years involving the consciousness and the intelligence of great apes and elephants. And it is an extraordinary body of science. And he says, based on what we now know, we should not be keeping these intelligent social animals in, in captivity and basically it, treating them as prisoners given their, given their incredible intellectual and social capacities. And so he has brought lawsuits uh, on behalf of a number of uh, great apes and on behalf of elephants in the state of New York seeking a legal remedy called habeas corpus, which basically has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is asking a court to determine that a person, in quotation marks, is being unlawfully incarcerated. And so the argument is that, for example, great apes that are being held as by a zoo or elephants that are being held by a zoo should be this legal remedy of habeas corpus should force them to discharge those either great apes or elephants and of course you know not set them not not, not just open the, the the gate of the zoo and let them walk free but to actually uh, because they're unlikely to be able to flourish in the wild in their na- natural habitat but to, to but to transfer them to some kind of sanctuary where they would have a much higher standard of living which do exist and which have already have already extended the offer that they they have space available to take to take these animals should they be should they be liberated right and um, to to date Stephen Wise has not been successful in any of his cases although he has he has come close he has had some judges say that they would like to rule in his favor but they found they found themselves bound by the precedents set by higher courts in the United States. But in uh, South America, there have been cases in Argentina in particular, where great apes uh, have actually, lawyers have brought these cases forward to the courts, and the courts have actually accepted the arguments, have issued writs of habeas corpus. And I'm, I'm familiar with one case involving a beautiful orangutan named Sandra, who was uh, basically a prisoner at a zoo in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and is now because of the court's intervention, uh, living a much happier life, I assume, in a in a in a sanctuary for great apes. And if he if he has not yet been successful in court, he he has been pretty successful in terms of um, attracting media attention. I don't know to what degree that's something he has sought, or if it's just his work is so provocative and so alluring. I think to many people that. He's gotten some good. He he had a New York Times magazine front cover. They have a documentary of it. So he's yes. done good work in spreading spreading the word of, of what he's working on. And um, I think many people find it naturally something they could sympathize with. Absolutely. So, you know, as lawyers, we say he may not have been successful in the court of law, but he's making strides in the court of public opinion. And right. we're now seeing, uh, in part due to the work of uh, brilliant and uh, courageous lawyers like Stephen Wise, we're seeing laws being passed, in, you know, in California, in Canada, in India, in Costa Rica, that are basically saying this is no. Given what we know about the science of the intelligence of the consciousness of these animals, it is no longer socially acceptable to keep them in zoos and aquariums. And so, 
you know, that is an extraordinary step forward in terms of recognizing the rights of, of these particular species. So moving on, could you talk to us about the Supreme Court decision, Tennessee Valley Authority versus Hill, and why the Endangered Species Act is potentially a, a really big deal? I mean, I think we've, most people have heard of it. I I work around it regularly doing animal rights work, but I myself didn't really have a clear sense of of what what it was when it first came around and and why it really was a very big deal. So could you could you explain that to us? What where did it come from and and why is it is it just as big a deal as as you know people could assume? It really is that it potentially that important. Yes, the United States Endangered Species Act is one of the most powerful environmental laws in the world and the story of the snail darter this tiny little fish that that stopped a major dam project back in the 1970s is a really, it's kind of a crazy story and, and surprised, I think, surprised a lot of lawyers, surprised a lot of Congress people. It, it started with this proposal from the Tennessee Valley Authority to build a dam on the Teleco River, in, or sorry, on the Little Tennessee River. The dam would be named the Teleco Dam. This was back in the 1960s. And, you know, these things, they take a while to get through the planning stages. And meanwhile, the United States had passed this Endangered Species Act in the in the 1960s. It had been strengthened substantially by the Nixon administration, much to people's surprise. But that was, you know, in the in the kind of heady days of the first Earth Day. And along came this professor from the University of Tennessee who was familiar with the Endangered Species Act and uh, had a student who wanted to write a paper about it. And the, the student also had taken some biology courses and had a professor who said he'd found this new new species of fish, this tiny little, it's really like no longer than your index finger, uh, fish called the snail darter downstream from the proposed dam. And so they filed a petition with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about this fish, had it had it added to the list of species protected by the Endangered Species Act, and then subsequently filed a lawsuit saying that to allow this dam to proceed would wipe out the only known population of the snail darter on Earth and thus violate the, the Endangered Species Act. So that, that case went, went to trial in the Eastern District of Tennessee, and you know the judge was, the judge was not impressed said it would be foolish for him to rule in, in favor of the snail darter in light of the importance of this economic project. So um, Zygmunt Plater, the, the lawyer from the University of Tennessee, he, they appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. And in this case, they actually won that appeal. And the, the judges found that by completing this dam and harming the habitat of the snail darter, the Tennessee Valley Authority would violate the Endangered Species Act. And then the TVA appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and you know, the the highest the highest court of the United States gave gave the, the legal team quite a quite a grilling about these snail darters. You know, asking what what's the purpose of these of these little fish? Are they suitable for food? Are they suitable for bait? You know, one one judge openly said, you know, I'm a bass I'm a I'm a bass fisherman. I want to I want to know about this fish, and you know it it. Definitely after the oral hearing, uh, the lawyers for, 
on the side of the snail darter thought they were sunk. And it was June the 15th, 1978, the Supreme Court of the United States surprised everyone with a six to three decision confirming that the, the dam's completion would in fact violate the Endangered Species Act. And the court said in, in these incredible words that I don't think anyone anticipated, that the plain intent of Congress was to halt and reverse the trend towards species extinction, whatever the cost. And you know that's a really extraordinary thing for the Supreme Court to have said. Uh, but it really did reflect the intent of the Endangered Species Act, which is to make sure we don't lose any of these incredible forms of life with, with whom we share this beautiful planet. Kind of a funny, I guess, footnote to the case that through a series of political shenanigans in Congress, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority ultimately got the green light to build the dam, went ahead. Efforts were, uh, efforts were made to get President Jimmy Carter to stop the dam by vetoing a certain piece of legislation. He, he didn't do it. Uh, the dam was built. And then I guess in the final ironic twist, scientists discovered snail darters in another creek near uh, Chattanooga, and they have now propagated in a number of different rivers in the United States. So the dam was built, the snail, starter, snail darter survives, but it was definitely a turning point in the environmental law history of the United States. And that, that law has gone on to inspire countries all over the world, including Canada, where I'm from, to bring in uh, strong laws to protect endangered species. So historically, it was a watershed. But even today, of course, to some degree, the power of laws is dependent upon the willingness of, of judges to enforce them, and to some degree, I suppose, politicians. And of course, the, the, the fate of the Endangered Species Act is still to be determined because it, it still is a living thing. But historically, it was major, and moving forward, it, it still has the potential to be a, a significant piece of legislation. Yeah, and I think it's really important to recognize that that law, the Endangered Species Act, uh, various American administrations have been reluctant to implement and enforce it, but they have had their feet held to the fire by environmental organizations like the Center for Biological Diversity and Earth Justice in literally hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits that have where courts have found that the government was not fulfilling its obligations under the Endangered Species Act. And in a retrospective looking back at decades of the law's existence, scientists found that it, it has been almost single-handedly responsible for saving and bringing back from the brink of extinction dozens and dozens of, of, of species from butterflies to grizzly bears in the United States. So you know, there have been a lot of efforts to weaken the law and water it down, but it's an incredibly popular law with the people of America, and it has been a, an incredible bulwark to, to prevent the extinction of species in the United States. So, David, let's quickly touch on two fairly recent international developments. Could you quickly talk to us about the provocative developments in New Zealand over the past decade or so, in particular concerning the Wanganui, if I pronounce that right, Wanganui River and the Te Uriwera National Park. And also, if you have time, just, just quickly touch on Ecuador's 2008 constitution and, and what that means globally. 
Sure. Yeah. Two of the most fascinating international developments regarding the rights of nature, and I'll, I'll deal with them in chronological order if that's okay. In 2008, the country of Ecuador, in large part due to pressure from indigenous people, included in its new constitution the rights of Pachamama, which is a Quechua phrase for Mother Earth. And, you know, this was really radical. The, the thought that in a constitution that which generally set forth, you know, a library of human rights, that a country would include the rights of nature in its highest and strongest law was really, truly revolutionary. And in the, in the decade or so since that constitution was created, Ecuador has changed over 75 different laws, regulations, and policies to incorporate the rights of nature. It's, it's still an ongoing struggle, in a, as you can imagine, in a developing country where they have you know, mineral resources and oil and gas resources and forestry operations. How do you actually achieve a balance between the need for human development and the rights of nature? But it, it is definitely a, a fascinating experiment and one that has really kind of turbocharged the global recognition of this idea of the rights of nature. And so if we turn to New Zealand, New Zealand, you know, a country that shares the same type of legal system with the United States and Canada, a country that has its own dark history of colonization and mistreatment of indigenous peoples. In the last decade or so, New Zealand has passed two laws with a third pending. So these are pieces of legislation in a, in a, in a Western nation that recognize the legal personhood of aspects of the natural world. In one case, uh, a region of about 400,000 acres that was formerly known as Te Uruwera National Park. And then in the second case, a river uh, and a watershed called the Fonganui, Fonganui River. And what's revolutionary about what they've done in New Zealand is that the government has passed these laws that have very poetic provisions articulating the interconnectedness of life in these in these ecosystems, uh, including including humans, but also including everything from the lakes, the forests, the rocks, even the even the spiritual elements of these ecosystems. So that's a very kind of non-Western perspective that's being reflected in these New Zealand laws. And then in both of these laws, they take what was previously the what's called the in, in New Zealand and Canada, the crown's title, the government's ownership of, in the in the one case, this area of 400,000 hectares, or 400,000 acres, the laws designate Te Uruwera and the Fonganui River as legal persons. So going back to that concept of legal personhood that we spoke about earlier, and then the laws take the ownership of the land and the riverbed, and they vest that in the legal persons. So just like a corporation can own land, in this case, in these two cases, what's truly remarkable from a lawyer's point of view and from a societal point of view, the, this ecosystem, Te Uruwera, now owns itself. The Fonganui River, as a legal person, now owns its own riverbed. And that's just, that's really kind of mind-blowing in a world where, as, as we talked about earlier, 99.999% of the land on earth is considered to be owned by humans. Now we have these two places in New Zealand where the ecosystems themselves have ownership of, of 
the, the, the land owns itself. The river owns itself. That's all I can say. And then the laws also set up human uh, guardians comprised of both Maori indigenous representatives and New Zealand government representatives whose responsibilities are set forth in the law to do everything in their power to protect the ecological health of Te Uruwera and the Whanganui River. Uh, and as I said, there's a third law in the works for uh, for a mountain in New Zealand as well. So these are these are from a from a legal perspective in a in a Western nation like New Zealand, really radical developments. Yeah, and this kind of brings us back to to where we began, which is that in many ways there is still so much work left to do that it can almost be discouraging. But on the other hand, thirty years ago or 50 years ago, or certainly before the United States Endangered Species Act, uh, where, we've, where we are now may, would have seemed unthinkable. So there, there's a lot of work left to be done, of course, but there really, there really has been significant progress that has been made. And, and it's important to not lose track of, of how far we've come and be, when we're becoming overwhelmed with how far there is to go. And I I do think your book does a wonderful job of that. It it lays out the terrain. It helps those of us who are not experts understand where where we've come from and how how far we have come. And yet at the same time, how there's still there still of course is a lot of work to to do. No question. But I think the one thing I would like to just add before before we say goodbye is that the pace of progress continues to accelerate. So. In Canada last month, for the first time, a local government and an indigenous government collaboratively recognized the rights of the Magpie River. Uh, and because indigenous people in Canada have their rights are constitutionally protected, this is a very this could be a very powerful form of protection for the Magpie River, which is threatened by hydroelectric development. And just this morning, you know, kind of, you know, there's. Last year, Uganda became the first African nation to uh, amend its environmental legislation to include recognition of the rights of nature. Just this morning, I saw a headline uh, coming through my news feed about the first lawsuit filed in Florida under a new rights of nature ordinance. So a waterway in Florida is suing the government for allowing damage to a wetland uh, in Florida. And there are, there are now over 40 local ordinances in all parts of the United States that recognize the rights of nature from Santa Barbara to recognizing the lakes rights of Lake Erie to this Florida law recognizing the rights of waterways and so I think we're it's always difficult to when you're when you're living through a revolution it's sometimes hard to see it but I think we are in the midst of a of a legal and cultural revolution in the way that we relate to the natural world and given what we know about the global environmental crisis this revolution is arriving in the nick of time. Yeah. I, you don't want to assume, you don't want to count on it because you never know, but I do think there's an awful lot to be optimistic about it. It does seem like people, people are really starting to, to catch on. And even if they're not doing it quite as quickly as you would like them to be doing it, it you, when you look around, it, it does seem like there is, there is a transformation underway and hopefully it, it only gains speed and hopefully it comes in time because as you noted there, we, we don't have decades or by any means centuries to, to play around and to, and to delay. So we, we really do need to, 
to get on this as, as soon as possible. Yes, we do. David, final question before I let you go. I do appreciate all the time you've taken so far. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you wanted to share with us? Uh, yeah, well, actually, that's a great closing question. Uh, I'm serving, as I mentioned, as the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment and really trying to get the United Nations to recognize for the first time that, that all humans, no matter what the color of our skin, our religion, our gender, all, everyone, everywhere has the right to live in a healthy environment. And so that's that's a human right. And some people might say, oh, David, you know, that's an anthropocentric approach. But some of the leading courts in the world, some of the most progressive courts in the world are interpreting this human right to a healthy environment as because we are scientifically part of nature, then the, the right to a healthy environment not only includes the health of human beings, but includes the health of ecosystems. And so I really think that this is also potentially transformative in a different way. And that's something that I'm hoping the United Nations will pass a resolution recognizing this right sometime in the next year or so, so that we can move forward with using it as a tool to achieve the type of transformations in our relationship with the natural world that we've been discussing today. Well, that sounds like wonderful work and congratulations for having that role. It sounds like a, a wonderful role. And, uh, and I wish you the best of luck. It sounds like you're doing important work there as, as well as with your, your teaching and, and your writing. So I, I, I thank you. Well, thanks very, thanks very much. And thanks for profiling all of the great books that you do on your, on your show. It's really terrific to see them get that kind of attention and, and you give them really the attention and the treatment they deserve. So thank well, you. Well, thank you. We're, we're, we're working on it. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to thank you for, for writing your book, for your time and insights today, and, and just for everything you're doing in general. It's, it's really appreciated. That's my pleasure. It's, an, it's a real honor, and it's, and it's immensely rewarding, not financially, but it's immensely rewarding to do this work. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with David R. Boyd about his 2017 book, The Rights of Nature, a legal revolution that could save the world. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. See you next time.